Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent, and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He's the master strategist and always directs our path. God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said He wants that. And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory. There's the way the world does business and there's the way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and His creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his call to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa podcast. We are committed to spotlighting the voices of entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the marketplace across the continent. This week, we are featuring OK and Elema. OK played a fundamental role in bringing private equity into Africa through his work with Africa Capital Alliance, the firm he founded in 1997. Today, SEA has raised over a billion dollars and is known as one of the foremost African-focused PE firms. OK has also served as the Minister of Industry, Trade and Investment in Nigeria from 2015 to 2019. He passionately believes that it takes all of Africa's involvement to achieve the continent's full potential. He joins the show to talk about how faith-driven entrepreneurs and investors can come together to create environments that enable success across industries. Welcome back to Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa. I'm here as always with Ndidi. Ndidi, good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. It's great to be back and it's great to be talking about faith driven entrepreneurship in Africa. And what does it look like for men and women united out of a gratitude for the gift of life given them to get out there and bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, under his power, for his glory, and specifically, of course, in Africa. Ours is an audience, mostly of African entrepreneurs. There are some folks that come over from our Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast that we have in the United States. It's broadcast to 180 countries in the world that have come over too, so we welcome them. And our hope, and Didi and my hope, is that we might be able to offer up a different narrative than one might have expected about how God is moving in the marketplace, about the size and scope of the businesses, about the impact that they're having in societies. And there's something remarkably exciting about Africa from a demographic standpoint. If you only look at the age of the population and how many entrants are coming into the marketplace, it eclipses China, eclipses India. And my full expectation and where I'm spending now an increasing, if not majority amount of my time is looking at 
this incredible continent of Africa? Where are the opportunities? And what language are they going to be speaking in the marketplace in 20 or 30 years? Is it going to be one that is God-centered and God-honoring, or is it going to be characterized by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches? Is it going to be just stop at an ethical business, or is it going to go through, as our friends from Praxis would offer up, through to a redemptive business? And so today, to help us to understand some of that is a great visitor, a great guest that we have. And I'm particularly excited indeed because OK has not just a perspective from being an entrepreneur, and especially as an investor, as many of our listeners will be, but has also served in government and can give us a broader perspective of the entire environment that's going on in Africa, and in particular, of course, Nigeria. Okay, welcome very much. Excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you, Ndidi, as well, for having me. So we like to get every one of our podcasts started with an autobiographical flyover of our guest, right up until your entry into the marketplace and where you are right now. But who are you? Where do you come from? And then as faith started becoming a part of your life, when did that enter in? So depending on how far back you want to go, you could say I started life. Let's go all the way back. Yeah, born in demands. My father was a reverend minister, a clergyman. My mother was a civil servant or a public servant. And they basically lived in Nigeria or we lived where, where Nigerians, I grew up in Nigeria, although they, they did have some stint schooling abroad. And, you know, so you grew up with a kind of faith that I would say is a matter of practice just because of the environment you are in. But that faith only took me so far. You know, I got into school, studied medicine in college or university, and graduated, and I was a very restless young doctor. You know, in fact, Ndidi's father was one of my teachers. I mean, he's a professor of pharmacology and taught me. And frankly, you know, those were great teachers and great times, but something told me I wasn't called to be a doctor. And that's really where faith kicked in, in a very personal and a very experiential way for me. Because while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, my sister took me to a full gospel businessmen's breakfast meeting that happened at one of our hotels in Lagos, a co-hotel. This must have been in 1988 or so. And while I was there, a man who's, you know, become more well-known and prominent because he, he leads one of the Pentecostal churches in Nigeria and that's grown all over the world, was ministering that day or speaking that day. And he spoke with such, you know, simple sort of um, zeal and such clear faith that I actually asked to meet him if it were possible. And God helped me. I was given an appointment to see him. And, you know, he prayed a simple prayer of faith when he understood that I was restless. You know, and this prayer was like, I would just have an encounter in the marketplace, you know, where God would direct my path. And at the time, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, there are times when God moves in your life in a way that, you know, this can only be God. That's exactly what happened to me. I won't bore you with all the details of how I got introduced to um, the firm of Arthur Anderson, which is a U.S., used to be a U.S. accounting and consulting firm. Yes, I mourn that loss with you. I joined Arthur Anderson in 1991 as my first job out of college after I'd been selling T-shirts. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to work for Arthur Anderson, which has been around forever and will be around forever. My grandkids will say that my grandfather once worked at Arthur Anderson. And now, unfortunately, they may say that, but nobody will know what they're talking about. And that is a great tragedy. But it sounds like Ndidi and I and you and some of our other guests have spent some time at St. Charles. Interesting. So I spent time with them, you know, um, worked for them in Lagos, worked for them in London for a short while. And frankly, I thought it was a great organization. So so glad to hear that you also had the same experience. You know, and they basically at the time were hiring non-accountants, you know, to train them to be business 
consultants and professional accountants and, and advisors. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity of joining them in 1988, you know, and that's how my career started. I really spent close to four years with them, qualified as an accountant. Then I took off from there. I went to Harvard Business School, got my MBA from there. I started my investment career. And during that time, I spent some time with the U.S. investment bank Goldman Sachs, again in New York and London, as part of my summer program. And that's really where I got my exposure to investments. And Didi knows the rest of my story that I decided to pursue a career in investment management, private equity, specifically focused on Africa after business school. And I hooked up with a partner that sent me to South Africa. And I met in Didi. In fact, I met in Didi while I was still doing my MBA because he came. But then Didi and I lived in Johannesburg at the same time. I think it must have been 95 or so. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, you know, you've been an inspiration to me and so many people in my generation. I met you when you were in business school, graduated as a Baker Scholar. And for those who don't know, it's the top top five or 2% or 1% of Harvard Business School class. That's how brilliant OK is. But you chose to come back home and you chose to really start the private equity industry in Nigeria. What propelled you? Did God speak to you at that time? And what led you to almost be a pioneer in this space? So I'll share two stories that, you know, sort of speak to God moving in the affairs of men, frankly. One was I took a course, and you may remember Professor Linda Hill. She had this course on power and influence, which I did in my second year, as a second year elective. And in that course, she required us to do a paper where you envisioned your future, where you just dreamt of the kind of life you wanted to live. You know, like they say, you had whatever you wanted. You know, if wishes were horses. They say beggars were right. What would you wish? So I came up with this dream. I wanted to work in Africa. I wanted to work in the investment space. I wanted to own my own business. I wanted to be very successful at it. And I wanted to give away a lot of money just from the success of my business career in a nutshell. That's what it said. But of course, the choices I was getting at the time were, you know, the, the types you will expect, investment banking jobs, consulting jobs, and maybe to work in industry. But the reason I tell that story is that like, just before I made up my mind, which of those available choices to make, even though none of them really fitted into my appetite and passion for Africa. I got a call one day from Thomas Vary, who then said he wanted to start a business attracting U.S. capital to invest in South Africa. Then we had Nelson Mandela. President Nelson Mandela had just come out of prison and was contesting or running for the presidency of South Africa. And he wanted to be one of those that would attract capital there. And I had the good fortune of linking up with him and raising that money. And that's actually how my entrepreneurial journey started, because we raised it as entrepreneurs. He was a senior partner, I was a junior partner. And we went and called on U.S. investment houses. And we were successful. And I moved to South Africa as part of that effort to manage the funds. And so my career started that way. So I would say, you know, God moved for me because he showed me that, like, the power of desire. I always talk about the power of desire. And, of course, having praying parents and praying family, because everybody was praying with me. My folks tease me that, like, in those days when I'm doing an interview, everybody's praying because I tell them to pray. So I believe in the power of prayer, and I have seen prayer work in my life time and time again. I believe in the efficacy of prayer. The second story I will share is that also just the favor of God upon one's life, because the dean of the school at the time, who knew Tom Barry very well, you know, actually intervened in my case in getting us to get to an agreement in a way that was just, you know, frankly, I'll say supernatural. It was just divine. It was divine intervention. He spoke up for me, and that lady called him. Um, Forgotten her name now, also spoke up for me, who was a set before me, but went to work for Tom Barry. She also spoke up for me. So I just found favor 
And that favor, of course, you know, propelled me forward. And I can go on and on about just divine intervention in my life. Thank you. Okay. I'm, I'm a big fan of your entire family and I know they believe in the power of prayer. I think yes. you have like five brothers who are pastors. You're a pastor and your mother, even well into her eighties is such a prayer warrior. So it's such a blessing. I consider myself a beneficiary of those prayers. Now you actually started Africa Capital Alliance and you've built a successful firm. Many of your investments have been written about and studied because of the 10x, 20x returns in some cases, and I know I might be exaggerating, but can you tell us about some of the wins? Because as Henry always says, we need to change narratives and especially about the results you can achieve in private equity investments in Africa. Yes, and you know, excellent question, Didi. I have had my fair share of wins. I've also seen cases where it needed, you know, divine intervention to recover from either a bad decision or a bad investment. I'm happy to talk about both because they're both very sort of helpful, right, for the faith journey, which I know this is so important in the chat we're having today. But let me start with the win. You know, one of the things that happened to us early is that I started from South Africa, as you know. Being part of the firm there, you know, when the opportunity came to do something similar in Nigeria, first of all, it happened at a time when you wouldn't have expected. God works in, you know, very mysterious ways. Right, General Abacha as the president or the head of Nigeria. But my mentor, who, as you know, we just lost in the last day or so, you know, had just finished his career in Arthur Anderson, where he had been the founding partner or the lead partner, but had become a mentor for me. He wrote my reference, going to have a business school, guaranteed the loans, the Kramer. He's a father figure to me, an American, by the way. And he basically had finished his time in Anderson, but felt his, he felt that he had unfinished business in Nigeria. And, you know, he and I started to talk about whether it was possible. He came to visit me in Taraka. We started to talk whether it was possible to do in Nigeria what we had done in South Africa. I thought actually it was not as likely, but thank God for Dick's faith and Dick's experience. He said, why don't we give it a shot? Why don't we visit? So I invited my partner, Thomas Barry, we visited, and then that business took up. I returned to be the founding CEO. Now, one of the benefits of starting from South Africa was it also happened at a time when a lot of South African businesses were trying to move into the rest of the continent, as they call it, going north from South Africa. You know, and a number of those businesses, because I knew South Africa, having lived there, and of course, knew Nigeria and my neck of the woods, we ended up being the partner of choice. And some of those returns, in fact, two of the businesses that had the most outsized returns came from that. Securicorp, which is a security business, was a business that was started small, but they had over 40x. You know, basically, we partnered with them to start. It was a business in South Africa called Great Security Services. It got acquired by a UK firm called Securicorp. So it became great security, but they were moving into Africa and we became their partner to come and establish a professional security services business, asset protection services business in Nigeria. It didn't require a lot of capital, that's the key. But obviously, once you build the business, they bought it over for a very good price. The other one that most people talk about that is better known is MTN. MTN also participated in the bidding that took place um, for the digital mobile licenses, the cellular licenses. I think it was 2003 or so. And we actually partnered with Mo Ibrahim first. Mo Ibrahim's company, Celtel, also bid, but they didn't win. But it speaks to the power of partnership and God's favor again, that one of our founding partners, Pascal Dozier, was one of the partners that MTN invited. You know, MTN went with individuals rather than going with a private equity firm like ourselves. We went with four or five individuals. Pascal Dozier was one of them. Once we lost and they won, Pascal said to them, but I know exactly who can help you mobilize the capital for the local partners because MTN didn't want to raise the money for them. Wanted to go and raise it. 
So we became the rallying point for the locals. But these were, you know, people that, you know, Tunde Fola, Wiyo, Bwengo, Yebade, Imoi Tsuili. These were, you know, reputable people in Nigeria. And so that became our most successful investment in African Capital Alliance's history because that was a sizable investment. You know, it returned hundreds of millions of dollars. Again, well over 40x in the first round. And then later rounds returned less return, you know, but all profitable. So we've seen God move. And I tell you something, at the time we're going into MTN, God actually spoke to me. He spoke to me that we'll see his glory. I remember that, you know, and that encouraged me because somehow, again, we found favor with them and we did see God's glory. I didn't realize we'll make that kind of outsized return. And of course, he's given, he's put Capital Alliance on the map and now a known quantity and we've raised all kinds of, we've raised over a billion dollars of capital. And like I said, we've made mistakes as well, you know, which I'm happy to talk about at the right time. Well, the right time might be coming up on this podcast. One of the things I really want you to help us do, because we have so many investors that listen to this, is you spend enough time in the States, enough time in London, enough time, of course, in Nigeria to have a perspective on how Africa investments are perceived by the Western world. And some number of our audience is going to be in the Western world. What would you say to them about being able to make world-class private equity investments? Because you've heard the objections before from some of your LPs, which are Western. What are the common misconceptions about investing in Africa that you'd like to help overcome that you have overcome? So I'll say three things to them, and two of them will be in honor of my mentors who happen to be Americans and therefore will speak to this audience as well. One is in honor of this, our mentor and legend of a man, this iconic figure, the criminal of our honor, who just passed at the age of close to 88. He's been a mentor, a father figure to many of us. Mm. Dick has a favorite saying about Nigeria. He says, if you apply the right success formula to Nigeria, over the long term, you will succeed. In other words, you just need to have staying power and you need to be doing the right thing. The power of compound interest will work for you. And this is true of Africa in general. Nigeria being you know, a very good example of the rest of Africa in that sense. And what he's really talking about is like, it's basically investing with the right principles, and I'll mention a couple of them in my last comment, but if you do it long enough, you succeed. That has been our experience. That was his experience working in Africa for over 40 years. And he succeeded not just in businesses, but in building people and building institutions that last. And this is true of Africa as it is true for the rest of the world. The second comment I would make from our second partner, Thomas Barry, is that he says I'd like to invest in places where the reality is better than the perception. I'm paraphrasing, but that's in essence is what he says. Mm-hmm. And he came to South Africa first because he felt that the reality was better than the perception post. Immediately, the, the changes started to happen in 1993, 1994. And he came to Nigeria as well in 1998 with us because he felt the reality is better than the perception. And Africa today is again in that setting where the reality, we think, is much better than the perception. And therefore, there's a premium that you get you know, for making that call in terms of what I call a return premium that is there for people to get, if they're willing to partner with people like us who know the market, which is then my third comment, that you have to partner with the right people. The quality of partners, the, the choices you make matters. You know, I believe in the power of partnership and in Africa, it pays to have the right partners. And I have found that like when we've partnered with the right people, you know, we've gotten excellent returns. And I think you'll find that is still true today. And certainly this is true in private equity. Also, just given the idea of the size and scope, you've raised a lot of money. What size fund is ACA? The last fund we raised was just under $600 million. 
And now we're trying to raise, you know, different funds in different categories that would, you know, generally be in that same ballpark. Yeah. So we're talking about investing at scale with great results, I think, about Eugene Peterson, the, the long obedience in the same direction, which is what you learned from Dick. And what a godly legacy he has. That's a story that continues to come up about somebody very intentional about loving on a culture and being there and the legacy that he's left with you and others. is just amazing. It's just awesome. Being a man who's as driven as you are by your faith, how do you see spiritual integration manifest itself in the marketplace? You talked about the full gospel aspect. You talk about apostles in the marketplace. What does that look like? In, in America, you think about a large fund that are out there. You don't typically think about somebody who might show up on a podcast talking as passionately about their faith as you do. What does it look like when an investor is motivated by their faith and interacts with entrepreneurs and interacts with individual portfolio companies? How does that spiritual integration come about? Or is it just like, you know, there's a secular spiritual divide. We're talking about balance sheets and income statements here, and we're going to kind of leave prayer out of it. Is there an integration there or is there not? Am I imagining it? Talk to us about it. There's an integration. I wouldn't go further. You know, you have to be holistic, right? It's the whole individual. And for me, you know, faith becomes powerful when it's a living faith, right? When you are living the faith, which means that like, it's who you are. This is not something you are putting on. This is who you are. And I'm not saying you don't put it on, but I mean it in the sense that like, it springs from within as well. You know, the way our faith says you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. So you have actually experienced God firsthand. That's why I told you my story at the beginning. I grew up in a manse, which means I grew up in church, but, you know, I experienced God firsthand and saw God walk with me, you know, as a matter of personal choice. So you then find that like that then informs everything I do. And I will then relate it to a very a number of practical ways. So one of the things I find, which I talked about earlier, but I'd like to repeat and emphasize is the power of prayer. The power of just bringing God into everything, literally everything. Even on this podcast, I love it when you say, let's pray to start. But I can tell you that like, I just love to bring God into everything. You know, a prayer of in my heart, I tell people, you know, whether I'm ministering in a church or in a marketplace or anywhere, they're like, I can't think of any time when I've invited God into a situation and I didn't get a response. So it becomes almost irrational not to invite him. Why would I go on when there's a God that is willing to partner with me and be present in my situation and walk through the journey with me and I don't bring him in? Now, that then leads me to the second thing that, you know, I find that like when you are seeking to please God and to honor God in the marketplace, the Bible says God honors those that honor him. First Samuel 2.30, you know, if you honor God, God will honor you. And I find that like, even in honoring God, in doing the things that he, I like to say, you know, I want to be one with God. I love to love what he loves. I want to hate what he hates. You know, you talked about love when you were talking about this. You know, if one can bring that sense of loving obedience to your work, you know, godly values, honestly, and you're not doing it to be religious. You're doing it because first of all, it pays when you work with people. Indeed, he knows what I'm talking about, like, when you treat people well, they'll treat you well. Particularly if you are competent. You see, there is no reason to be insecure if you know where you're going. I just had a negotiation before this, and I was trying to invite somebody to work with us on a project I'm working on. And, you know, we went through the negotiation. I kept checking myself, am I being fair to this person? And I felt I was being fair. And I explained to them why I thought this was the way to go. And eventually, Richard landed. And I'm happy, and that happened. And even when I finished, I still went through the, you know, just replaying in my head. Is this the way to work with this person? And I think it's win-win. And I honestly believe the relationship is going to work out very well. And by the way, I learned this. I wasn't always like this. So my faith has also grown. What do I mean by that? I come from a background where I like margin of safety. So even in investments, you know, I want to get a low price and all that. 
But I've learned, just like the great investors in our field, the Warren Buffetts and Charles Mungas of this world will tell you, they've learned to go from deep value investing to quality investing. You get a better return. Quality relationships, quality win-win partnerships, you get a better return. So that's something I view as practical Christianity as well. The final thing I would say is integrity. And I know that kind of related, but this thing about integrity is where apostles in the marketplace comes in. We live in a society where it's almost as if like cutting corners, corruption is perversive. But God spoke to me in 2010 and spoke to me clearly and said he's looking for apostles in the marketplace, you know, apostles of righteousness, this same theme we have. And God actually said to me that if you will find such people who will honor him by doing what is right, he will show that it pays to serve God. You know, a lot of people don't believe that if you did things right, you can make it, which is why I'm glad you're having this podcast and the kind of work you're doing. It's very important that this message gets out because the devil will want the world believe that only people who cut corners make it. Yet the evidence is overwhelming and there, whether it's in the US or in Nigeria or Africa or the rest of the world, that there is always, you always have a group of people, you know, who do it right and get results. They may not be in the majority, in fact, they may be a minority, but that's really the gold standard. That's where you want to be. Thank you, okay. I just, I love the messages you're sharing today and they resonate with me deeply. And I can say that I have seen God move in your life and this whole concept of growing in your faith, because when I met you, you were a lot more brash and arrogant because of your success and your brilliance, right? I'm saying this with all love. And as I've watched you grow, even heard you preach and then watched you mentor people, I've just seen over the last almost 30 years, God move in your life. And I just want you to speak to those who are listening around this issue of humility and how you have opened your hearts for God to use you and to learn from God, because so many successful people fall into the trap, even as we try to walk with God. It's an excellent question, and I agree with you completely. And it's not always obvious. Humility is, is a journey, right? It's a journey. You know, the Bible speaks of the humility of Moses. I was reading a story that said that you know, that it took 40 years shepherding sheep at the backside of the desert for that old Moses that was brash and like it spoke about me and I totally own up and fess up, as I say. And it's come from experience. It's come from, you know, humbling experiences as well. And I'll share a few with you. You know, the first thing I would say, and I like to tell stories in some of these things, that like I was once asked to minister to a group of young people, you know, and this was my younger brother. I have a younger brother who is an oil engineer. He's very successful in the oil sector. He had his mates and he asked me to come and speak to them about, you know, success in career and in the marketplace. And, and while I was reflecting or meditating on what to say, God spoke to me and said, go and speak to them that humility is a defense. And he started to expound on that in my heart. He started to just build that message in my heart that, you know, humility is what will take you very far in terms of like, there are times when you would meet unexpected setbacks. It's humility that makes you not to grumble against God and to check where you are wrong and what you need to amend versus being overly defensive. There are times where you are very successful, like you said, and it's humility that would you know, help you to stay and not have the kind of pride that is really the precursor to a fall. And there are times when things are so slow. And, you know, you, humility works all the time. You know, I will share a story with you and why I say humility is progressive. I was asked a question when I came to Harvard Business School in 2014. I was asked to come and speak to the African Business Club, as, as they're called, at ABC. And I went and listened to the video, you know, of what I said to them then, recently. 
And I was asked a question about, you know, exits and sort of the challenge of investing in Africa. And I gave answers that at the time, when I look back now, we had had most of these great successes. And a storm was coming. I didn't know it, you know, because we've had to really battle all kinds of storms in the last six to eight years in Africa and in Nigeria, particularly as you know. But, you know, I remember the answers I gave to them. You know, when I look back now, to be honest, I didn't think he had enough humility at all. You know, I said, of course, we do this, we do that, we do that. I just gave a textbook answer. But I can tell you the experience I've had in the last 10 years, now the question sounded so prophetic. But the man might as well have been asking me, how are you going to humble yourself to deal with the difficult season that is coming? You know, of course, I gave a textbook answer, but I wish I had even more humility, you know, to understand that like, we're not as much in control as we think. And that's really the ultimate humility. This understanding that we are not as in control as we think. Context matters. A lot of the success we've had is the environment, you know? And when it's happening, you think it's you, you think you are brilliant, you think you are very smart, until the environment goes difficult. And then you realize that, like, you are literally trying to stay afloat, right? So I would say that there is something about humility, you know, as a defense that I like a lot. And for me, it really comes down to, one, acknowledging God, as a Christian, as well as acknowledging the role of others. I always like to point out that a lot of the successes I've had have come out of, you know, just being fortunate, to be honest. The quality of partner, look at Dick Kramer. Dick did everything for me a father would do for his son. Why would I not give him credit? And it's almost hard to see how you won't succeed with that. You know, look at Tom Barry, who made me a partner coming out of HBS, you know, and so on and so forth. So I've had my fair share of successes by the help of other people as well. You've been an investor for a long time, and investors invest in pattern recognition, and so many of our audience are entrepreneurs that are businesses that would love to be able to get investment, to be able to grow what they believe that God has put in front of them and get investment capital from partners like ACA. Tell us about what you see in successful entrepreneurs. What are the patterns you see? Yeah, so for me, it comes down to, you know, you can use C's, you can use I's. I mean, let me go with the C's, right? So first of all, successful entrepreneurs are people who have character, you know, meaning integrity. Our mentor, again, I talk a lot about Dick because he mentored me over many years, over 30, 40 years. Dick says that like he wants to partner with people who even in their marriage, you know, considers marriage the most basic of partnerships, show integrity. You know, because even when you're working other in private equity, it's a partnership. And you want the kind of partnership where the people you know, will be aligned, you know, where you are, you win together, you lose together, as opposed to people who are trying to take advantage of you or you are trying to take advantage of them. But there's also the part about competence, right? About just understanding the business or having a track record or being able to execute on the strategy. You know, particularly in a, in a place like Africa, it's a challenging operating environment. I wouldn't mislead you, right? But it is also true that people who, like you said, recognize patterns, have had the experience, can walk through that and succeed. And there's actually a premium on competence because those who do it well eventually become more reliable and therefore people, almost like a flight to quality, people want to partner with such people. I also think that there is something to say about, you know, just the capacity to stay with it, you know, not to get discouraged easily because, you know, life will throw stuff at you. I like entrepreneurs who have that entrepreneurial spirit in the true sense of, you know, the way, you know, have a business school and place like say that entrepreneurship is the ability to get results regardless of resources you currently control or something like that. In other words, they're able to 
go with it and stay with it. And, and they don't allow the constraints, which are there, right, to become the dominant thing. You know, they yeah. allow the opportunity to feel what they're doing. But I'll say the final thing I would say is that, like, I am very big on partnership, like I said before. So I'm very big on alignment. You know, so I like situations where coming together actually helps to achieve the results because we bring something that the entrepreneur needs, not just the money, but also, you know, the contact base, the network, maybe the wisdom or, or experience or, you know, other people can bring along. So we have seen many success stories, but like I said, we have also seen some things not work out. Thank you, okay. I know you're in legacy mode now. First, your decision to enter the government landscape and serve as a minister of trade and investment at a very important time in our history. And I would love for you to talk about that. And then your decision to actually start a very, very high impact intervention in the education arena. We'd just love for you to share what God placed on your heart for those two decision processes and how you've navigated them. Excellent. So let me start with the government. The government is another example of how God works in the affairs of men. You know, I love to take credit for it, but I can't. And the reason is that, like, while I have always been interested in nation building and governance and, you know, even service, I pride myself on being a private sector. You know, the way we talk about the private sector, we partner with people in government. There are politicians, they do their part, we do our part together where, you know, I got an unexpected call, you know, and at the time I got this call, we had just raised this fund that I talked about, I was just under $600 million. And I was, the investors, you know, moved me from being a key man to a super key man because they realized we're in transition mode. People like the Kramer and others were leaving. So of that founding generation, I was the one that was youngest and the one they felt to act as a glue to the next generation. So just out of eliminating the concern I could even contemplate living, they said you're super key man. Super key man means that like, if somebody leaves, you inform the investors and you give them a suitable replacement. Super key man means that if you leave, the thing stops. Automatically there's a suspension event and it can only restart if they're satisfied. I mean, you are in this business, so you understand what I'm saying. So I didn't think it was feasible because I didn't want to suspend. And my rationale was like, we employ over 50 people. There are many people depending on this. Even if I wanted to serve, I didn't think I had the luxury of service at the time because I didn't think I could stop. But I remember that evening, I had a, the Holy Spirit speak, you know, whisper to me, what if I'm the one calling? And it's like, well, if God is the one calling, then God will make a way. He's God, right? So that's how the journey started. And I won't go through all the details, but then the door opened. But the other thing that happened with public service that really ministered to me or inspired me that I like to talk about is God actually spoke to me on what to focus on. And I've said this before. God said to me, focus on enabling environment. And let me use a biblical analogy. You know, the story that came to my mind was the story of Rehoboth, who, as you know, was the son of Solomon. As you remember, when Rehoboam took over from Solomon, you know, basically he was given a test. You know, the older people said to him, if you treat these people well and make life easier for them, they'll be loyal to you. But in trying to be macho and to take the advice from his peers and the younger folks, you know, the way they say that you as a leader, you have to choose that you want to be respected or feared or loved or whatever, that it's better to be respected and loved, you know, that kind of stuff. So he decided he wanted to be feared rather than loved and told them, I'm going to deal with you. I'm the king. I'll show you Pepe and all that. And he paid a high price for it. And it occurred to me that most governments, certainly in Africa, they want the following of the people. They want to attract investments. They want to employment. All those things, all roads pass through this enabling environment, making it easier to do business, making it easier to attract investment. The question is, why are we not doing it? And it's not clear to me that government, if it was right thinking, 
shouldn't focus on that. Now, for self-serving people who are interested in what they make out of government as individuals, the agency problem, you know, of course, they benefit from the obstacles, from the roadblocks. And, and so I preached this message, or should I say I took this message to government. And frankly, the president bought into it and some others. Of course, implementing it takes a lot more time. And we started, as you know, that effort is still going on under the Presidential Enabling Business Environment Council. So I still consider it our legacy, even though it's a seed that has been sold. My vision for government in Africa, in Nigeria, frankly, is for this enabling environment to make it easier for the players to play. So that's one of my key sort of, um, shall I say, areas of intervention and passion when it comes to government and public service and legacy. But I'll touch briefly on the education intervention as well. While I was there, I mean, prior to that, indeed, he actually was one that invited me to join an Aspen Institute Fellowship, which was called the African Leadership Initiative at the time, the West African cohort of it, back in about 15, 16 years ago, 2005, 2006. And we are required to work on a project. And it was actually Ike who said, why don't we work on a project to build a world-class university of technology? At the time, just like the India Institute of Technology uh, we have in India. But at the time, we didn't do it because we didn't think we were ready. While I was serving in government, there was a video clip on how much India had achieved through these India Institutes of Technology. And it occurred to me that like, we ought to have done more with our own opportunity. And so I rallied some members of my class, like uh, Dr. Johnson. I spoke to Ike as well, but he was already working with Dan Gote. And we started. We actually decided to make a start. So we started something called Nigeria University of Technology and Management. We started with a very small fellowship focused on technology, entrepreneurship, and design. We've had two cohorts now, and it's off to a great start. We just had our first president, the former CEO of Nigerian liquefied natural gas, perhaps of Motawa, also a Christian. And we're off to the races, as I say. I'm very excited about it, and I think we can really make an impact. Full circle moment. You know, recently, a FOSA came to speak at your institute. And it was actually a full set that introduced me to Henry. So full circle moment. God is, God is connecting people who share like-minded visions and passions. Thank you for all that you've done, okay? And thank you for being a person of integrity in government and bringing God's light into the public sector in Nigeria. And thank you for all your support. I know I wanted you to come and join us, but you said our support from my role. And what I do in agriculture is amazing. And I tell you, agriculture... Is just pivotal. People talk about it, but you're actually doing it. So I'm incredibly proud of you, as you know. You're my hero or heroine to be gender sensitive. Mine too. Mine too. Okay, we like to finish out every one of our episodes with hearing from our guests about something that they've heard through God's Word, believing that God's Word is indeed the sword of the Spirit and that He speaks to us through it. And maybe it's something this morning or this week or something recent, but what's something that you believe that you've heard from God through? his word that might be an inspiration and encouragement for us. So this ties into something, a question you asked earlier. This is something God has been speaking to me about, and I shared on it actually on both his morning, and I also missed that somewhere on Saturday. And it's this theme of being one with God, this theme of just being one with God. You know, Jesus' final prayer in John chapter 17, where he says, when he was praying for his disciples, at the heart of that prayer was that we will be one with God, that we will be one with God the Father through the Son. Because he said this, you know, the Father and I are one. And my desire, my prayer is that they will be one. You know, first of all, unity amongst them, but also that they will be one with us as I'm one with you, the Father. And this is where Jesus is dying prayers, literally, his final prayers. Mm. And one of the things, because when I think about my own life and ask myself, you know, when I live a life of faith, what does it mean for me? For me, the ultimate would be to be one with God, you know, to be fully aligned with him in my choices, 
in my thoughts, in my words. I know it's a tall order, but I like faith. I like to exercise my faith in prayer. So why don't I ask God to be one with him, you know, to be aligned with him? And that's really what I'm praying for now, what I'm asking for, you know, to be one with God so that I'm not pursuing an agenda. You ask me, that's why when you talk about integration and I told you that it goes even further to oneness, to unity, you know, and I know it's a high bar, but it's really one that I find really intriguing and exciting. Make that into a prayer, if you will. We've never done this on any of our podcasts where we've actually asked a guest to pray for us in our audience as we close out, but I feel led to do that, and I'm hoping that you would do that for us. I'll be glad to do so. Thank you. Father, I would just want to say thank you. Thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your presence. Your presence has been here. Thank you for this initiative, you know, and what it's going to do for our faith, you know, for just encouraging faith in the marketplace. And thank you for this theme of our hunger and our desire to be one with you, to be aligned with you, to love what you love and hate what you hate. For Henry, for Didi, for myself, for all who will listen to this message. But our desire is just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ prayed for us as his disciples, as his followers, that will be one with him and one with God the Father that will come into unity, into harmony, into alignment, into oneness with you, so that your thoughts will become our thoughts and your ways will become our ways and will just live to please you and to honor you. That's our desire. The Bible says in Psalm 37 verse 4, that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, you will grant us the desires of our hearts. Father, this is our heart's desire. And we choose to delight ourselves in you by just being one with you. Help us, Father. Let it be so. For in Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. 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 What a blessing. So much. Thank you. Very, very grateful for you. Okay, thank you. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible through the special help of all our friends. Thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country. We are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends.